You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Driving Law Podcast. I'm back again with Paul Doroshenko. Hello, Paul. Hi, glad to be back. Let's get yes. going. Yeah, you're you're now you're in a rush. We just spent like the last 10 minutes watching Paul take selfies in our recording studio here. Don't mock me for taking selfies. It's a sign of deep insecurity. I was the sel- the first 3 selfies I took didn't have me in it and then I realized <laughs> that they were I then was supposed selfies. to be taking selfies of both of us in the studio. So, or... you know, okay, maybe I am deeply insecure, but I was you know, forgotten myself in the photos. Right. Well, uh, today, the day the podcast is released, not today, the day we're recording, which is before the podcast is released, but today in fictional future land that we're going to cast our minds into right now is a very big day in driving law in Canada. Because today is the day that the sentencing decision is going to be released in the Jazz Kirat Sidhu Humboldt bus crash case. And it's been a topic of conversation, I'll tell you, um, throughout uh, with all sorts of lawyers I talk to and just all the media people. Uh, everybody sort of is asking me where it's going to go and what the uh, what the outcome's going to be. And it's it's been difficult. It's been like mentally straining for me. It's a hard thing to talk about. Because it is a case where there is just this huge amount of devastation that came from a single act. And it's one of those instances where, like, you you can't put it right. I mean, you can't, there's no sentence that will somehow balance and equate with the damage that was caused. Um, There's no, you can't bring back the dead people and you can't put the injured people back and no matter what it is it's never going to seem like it's a sufficient sort of um way of addressing the harm and at the same time you the know, level of moral blameworthiness yeah i mean if 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 it weren't for the fact that it was an 18 wheeler um you know there wouldn't be that level of harm like if the guy was driving a Chevy Cavalier, he would have been dead. Nobody in the bus would have been injured, and that would be it. Um, or you know, he might have survived, and it might have still been dangerous driving, but we wouldn't have. It would have been completely unremarkable. So I want to go back and talk a little bit about the specific facts of the driving, and then you know, based on those, and where we are now we could think about what might happen in the sentencing. I mean, we know it's going to be jail, but, you know. I'm not going to start speculating about the period of time and and that, you know, we talked about that a while back. And my problem with that is, as we're here less than 24 hours before um, he's sentenced and this is going to be airing or available for download right after, it doesn't seem like it's a something that I'm willing to speculate about what the sentence is going to be. Okay. Well, um, so I'm uncomfortable with that. I'm, 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 I am, however, willing to talk about 
you know, how we address this going forward in the future, because we've had this ongoing problem with dangerous driving cases where there's some really bad damage. And, you know, the driving, nobody who's driving like that expects to harm somebody like that. And we've, you know, in the legal community, we've generally looked at it as looking at the driving and not looking at the harm. And this may be a real significant turning point as far as that is concerned and sort of the elevated, maybe a new concept of an elevated moral culpability when there is worse damage. Yeah, I don't think, though, that that fits with the principles of sentencing. I don't, you know, I don't see where in the criminal code it says you're sentenced for how bad the consequences of your very mm. minimally blameworthy conduct were. You're supposed to be sentenced for, you know, for a sentence that's specific to you as an offender, that's proportional, that's that encourages the goals of denunciation, deterrence, rehabilitation, reintegration into the community if you need to be separated from the community, and separation of an offender from society if necessary. But if it was just dangerous driving, running through a um, stop sign, you know, we'd be talking suspended sentence. Um, so we, we have come to the conclusion and I've, you know, it's been voiced in some decisions that they are going to take into account the results of the dangerous operation um, in the sentencing. And I, I think we're going to see it full on in this one. I think this is going to be the case that is the example of it, and it's going to... That's the, the retribution principle of sentencing in play. Yeah, which isn't a sentencing principle in the criminal yeah. code, but it's the, you know, it's the societal's surprisingly sentencing. human and probably wrong I just concept. think though like when you look at like if you separate the consequences of the driving and if you try and look at it objectively for what the driving was which was a guy who was completely inexperienced uh, the evidence is revealed you know pressured by this company not having the right amount of training um on the road, driving a vehicle that had a tarp that was flapping, that was causing a distraction, and he pulled over to fix it, and then he continued driving, and it came loose again, and he was distracted by the tarp and missed the warning about the stop signs. Like, to me, if you consider, like, the spectrum of bad driving that they talk about in these cases, right, the mens rea sort of scale where you have momentary inattention, um, the 144-1A offense, all the way to, you know, a <coughs> deliberate course of really shitty driving because you're, you know, An trying, <laughs> trying to run down your spouse or whatever. Um, you know, he's so much closer to that momentary inattention point. Which, again, brings you right back to the same issue. Like, had he gone through the stop sign and somebody had to swerve, it could have still been charged as dangerous driving um you know it's only as a result of this carnage that we're looking at it that we're looking at it differently and that the court's going to look at it differently they're going to look at it differently and you know i have to think that 30 years ago um you know maybe without the discussion or whatever on the internet that the the 
court may not have been um, so willing to accept the concept that we're going to take into account the consequences of that bad driving. But courts are already not accepting that concept. Um, I was just preparing for a sentencing in a case with a death. Um, it was a, a charge under the Motor Vehicle Act, so a careless driving, but there was a death that ensued. And the case law that talks about whether or not the court imposes a driving prohibition in those instances is very clear that you don't take into account what the consequences of the driving were. That's not a, a relevant factor um, in determining what penalty somebody gets. You take into account their level of moral blameworthiness in the manner in which they drove. I'm thinking of that case with the nurse who went in the... Um in the right-hand turning lane and then blew through the intersection and caused a collision which killed two people in Maple Ridge. Hasimovich. Yeah. So Went to what the happened? Court of Canada. What happened in the Supreme Court of Canada? So she uh, as I understand she was acquitted at trial. There was a crown appeal. The conviction was reinstated on appeal. She appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada um, who found that it was dangerous driving and it went back to the Court of Appeal, and then she was sentenced to something hefty. Well, that's the point. Okay, so it went back, and then the sentencing decision was appealed as well. And the sentencing decision was appealed on, uh, basically, I mean, we should we could pull it up here, but the sentencing decision was appealed because uh, it hadn't taken into account um, the results of the, of the dangerous driving. And it went to the Court of Appeal, and the Court of Appeal upped the sentence on that basis. Uh, and which surprised me. I, I mean, you can pull it up and look at it. It's been a while since yes. I looked at it. It's 2017 BCSC 1433. Um, and uh, the court is dealing with uh, the sentence. They note, actually, they discuss in the case a lot about the concept of retribution and vengeance. Um, talking about how retribution is like this measured response, which properly reflects the moral culpability of an offender, having regard to their intentional acts and the consequential harm. So, but here with the Sidhu case, you don't have really intentional acts. You have quasi-intentional acts there was a, you know, an I, I, you, you, yeah. from our perspective, it's not intentional at all. No. It's just the court has accepted the plea. So yeah, well, you, you have him to, yeah. accepting responsibility for dangerous driving in what I would say <clears throat> are highly questionable circumstances and against the advice of his counsel. But I mean, you know, that you can't stop people from pleading guilty if they acknowledge guilt for an offense. Um, so that's, that's retribution. That's what the Court of Appeal said about retribution there. And they go on to say that retribution requires the imposition of a just and appropriate punishment and nothing more. Well, if you if you take those words at their literal meaning, and I know the Court of Appeals criticized me before for taking their words <laughs> at their literal meaning. Ms. Lee, why are you taking oh. Don't parse the words of a decision as you would the words of a statute, to which I always want to say... Don't write your decisions that way, then. Be a little more careful yeah. when you're writing your decisions. I don't write arguments that, you know, might be used against me in the future. I try not to. But anyway, the, uh, the point being that if you took those words at their literal meaning, the type of sentence that 
Mr. Sidhu should get should not be the type of sentence you would see in another case of dangerous driving with less carnage. It should be a lesser sentence. He should get something lower, a suspended sentence. Well, that's why I say, you know, in my view, if it was me making the pitch, I would have been arguing that it would should be a suspended sentence. But I, you know, I, I, and, I and I'm not saying like, the, the feedback has been from Canadians in the call-in shows when I was on, I think, Linda Steele. Uh, people were calling in and saying, you know, this is, uh, they, they all recognized. I mean, anybody who's ever driven in Saskatchewan recognizes that this is something that can happen. And it can happen to any one of us. And, you know, just the worst case scenario is a semi-trailer truck and a bus. And, and you can't predict that. But, of course... You know, there's general deterrence and the idea of general deterrence for semi-trailer truck drivers, I guess. Right, but I would think, I don't know, that most semi-trailer truck drivers are petrified of experiencing this, of causing this type of carnage, of causing this much pain to not just a community, but really to the whole country. Oh, I know. I mean, uh, you know, <clears throat> like that's that's the old general deterrence thing. <laughs> like, you, you you generally you don't need to deter a lot of people from crimes. There's lots of things that you know crimes people would commit, but for the fact that the police are out there, uh, you know, looting happens, and people who participate in that and riots are often people who wouldn't do anything like that the rest of the time. But in the circumstances of you know your average semi-trailer truck driver or even your average, you know, professional driver of any sort, you know, they, they, do they need that general deterrence of that? Yeah. Well, know. I mean, Hasimovic in the end got 90 days. No, I know. And I her mean, moral, moral culpability was higher. Like the court actually gives an example in Hasimovic of a person who is intentionally driving dangerously in a remote area compared to a person who is not intentionally driving dangerously in a really dense urban area. Well, her driving was a very short moment of, of bad driving that was extremely dangerous, obviously killed two people. But she made an intentional decision when she was in an extremely bad emotional state to get behind the wheel of a vehicle and continue driving. Yeah. Anyway, every one of these cases has their complex well, and the, uh, aspects as, of it and angles as it. they say about sentencing, it is a highly individualized exercise, and you're never going to have two sentencing cases that are exactly the same. There's so much in the news right now. There's so much in the news right now, and this yeah. is going to come out on a Friday, and it's going to be one more thing in the news, and it's going to be a heavy topic, I expect, throughout the day. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what sentence the court imposes. I'm also going to be interested to see the reaction from the public, because by and large, the public in this instance has been very supportive of the driver. I know. They've been sympathetic to the driver because I think everybody can understand that this can happen. But, yeah. you know, that that uh, we may hear some more extreme voices after the decision comes out. I mean, if he gets a... Uh, a, a, light a very light sentence. There may be a lot of people who are very upset. You know, there's always these people, the, the weirdos with their billboard out on the uh, Highway 1, you know, blaming judges for every problem that they've got in the world. Um, 
I guess we'll find out. So we will. So moving on. We will be standing by and (laughs) you will, by the time you're listening to this, you're already going to know about it. Yeah. But moving on to another, um, driving related topic. Because it's driving law. Yes. With Kyla Lee and sometimes Paul Doroshenko. And sometimes Paul. Um, this, this week, I also want to talk about cell phones. I know we talked about them last week in it's been a cell phone the bonanza. partridge case. Yes. And the last couple days have been a lot of cell phone related content in, uh, the media. Um, and I think now, and, and, and I gave an interview, I was on global yesterday. And as I went to drive out of the parkade downtown today, um, I stopped behind a black Range Rover that was parked over the, over the bike lane and on the sidewalk driving out of my, and it was just stopped there. And I thought, oh, he's waiting to turn. He's not signaling either direction, but he must be waiting to turn. He must be waiting for an open space. Finally, I gave up, uh, like after a few minutes, I beat my horn and I could see him put his phone down. Oh God. What an That's ass. not safely pulled off the road. Well, he's like, he's parked on, in, in the, the bike, bike lane, lane. Yeah. and on the sidewalk. I was going to say, there may be an argument that that parkade, because it's pay parking and reserve parking no. only, is not a highway industrial uh, road, was, but he was he on was, the roadway. He was beyond the sidewalk, like he was two thirds of the way over yeah. the sidewalk. He was leaving in just enough room for people to walk behind his, his Range Rover. And, you know, it drives me fucking crazy. I'll bet. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so... In Quebec, talking about some shitty consequences to shitty driving, a man was recently sentenced to a period of imprisonment after a cell phone offense while driving, where he caused an accident that resulted in, it was either bodily harm or a death, I can't remember, but serious consequences, because he was on his way to meet his girlfriend and his wife found out and was texting him to be like, yo, dude, what the fuck? <laughs> okay. I still want to know what he was convicted of because I... Distracted I driving. Get... Cell phone. A cell phone. A electronic cell phone device. But yeah, it was prosecuted because of the consequences. It was prosecuted sort of in provincial court as opposed to... Okay. However, Quebec does their traffic court. Well, the... Um... Morality of his uh, his um, relationship situation aside, um, texting and driving and causing an accident, I think, is the issue. I actually, uh, it was death, I now remember, because it surprised me because I said, well, there's one case where we can clearly identify the, the cause of, of the collision and the resulting death was related to a cell phone. Yeah, and that's the thing. Most accidents, they can't say. So in... BC, for example, when we made those those requests and got the Freedom of Information um, disclosure from the coroner's office, it was like two people a year, nobody in Vancouver ever or Surrey ever. There was just no deaths, and they keep talking about these distracted driving deaths. And there was uh, lots of deaths every year, but not connected to cell phones, or at least they couldn't prove it. But I suppose if somebody dies, it's easier for them to... Uh, get a warrant to seize the cell phone, first of all, and then well, yeah. get a warrant to find out. And maybe his ex-wife was, uh, or his wife, maybe now ex-wife. Probably not super uh, concerned about her privacy. Could have been a witness, <laughs> no, yeah. No third-party privacy interest in those uh, those text messages. I yeah. think she'd wave it. Uh, which I guess, you know, there's a lot of moral lessons there. But anyway, he got a jail sentence. Which is interesting, yeah. uh, but he killed somebody and, you know, 
killed somebody by being an asshole. So there's a guy who's driving like a jerk. Yeah, but people kill people driving like jerks here all the time in careless driving situations and don't get jail. As you and I well know. Well, maybe it's all the warnings about using your cell phone and the court took that into consideration. Who knows? Who knows what went, you know, what happened in court, but like jail. So what I want to talk to you about specifically with that is the fallout from it. Because since then, there have been a number of like opinion pieces and news articles and, you know, quote unquote, legal experts being interviewed um, to offer their opinion that distracted driving penalties are going to increase as a result of this and that there are going to be more vehicle seizures and impounds and cell phone seizures and jail sentences. Thoughts? Um... For us in British Columbia, it's already very difficult to figure out what your punishment is going to be for a, a electronic device ticket because you've got the $368 fine, then you've got driver point premium because you get four points, which is a minimum $210, but that's only for one year. But if you um, if you get uh, two of them, then you're now at driver risk premium, which goes for three years and it's $444 a year uh, calculated on your birthday. So at that point, you're at $2,096 or something like that with two electronic ticket, uh, electronic uh, device tickets. Um, David Eby said it was going to go up in November. I thought it was last November. Apparently, it's next November. Yeah, 2000 bucks. Yeah. So it's going to be, yeah, on your first one. Is that? Second. Well, it's right now. It's on your second. Is the It's $2,000 in fines um, and driver risk premium in total if you have two of them in one year. Because the driver risk premium goes back for, for two or yeah, three years. Yeah, that happened as of March. He said in November last year, <clears throat> it's going to happen in March this year. Oh, I Is thought there was another. Up? Yeah, he said okay. then it's going to go up another 30% in November. This coming November? Yeah. Yeah, okay. All right. So, yeah, 30% more of uh, 444, I guess. Just per year. Squeeze that money out of those poor people who need to text while they're driving. Well... You know, as I looked back at it. Or those poor people who got convicted for having a cell phone in a cup holder. That's what I was thinking about. So there are, you know, you gave these uh, media interviews where you said potentially thousands of people could be appealing their tickets. Yep. And I was asked the same question in by different journalists. And I said, uh, I'd be surprised if there's too many people who do it. Well, yeah, potentially thousands could. Probably a handful will. A lot of people will never hear about that, you know, that we've got this new clarity in the law. You know, you can have your cell phone in the cup holder um, and they've paid their ticket or they've got their ticket and they're, you know, the 30 days are going to come up. I don't think, I don't think we're going to see any massive numbers of people appealing. I mean, think about, think about when we've had changes to the IRP scheme, when you argue the bird decision and the superintendent's report was deemed inadmissible. You know, there were thousands of people out there who could have appealed their immediate roadside prohibitions on the basis of the bird decision. And, you know, we did it for our clients and not every client wanted to do it. You know, we succeeded in lots of IRPs then, but then we had, uh, um, the bird decision and there was people we hadn't succeeded for. And we phoned them up and said, look, if you want, we can appeal your IRP. Now we've got this decision. It's, you know, it's the, the issue is decided. Um, do you want us to appeal it? And some people were like, no, no. Yeah. yeah, I know. 
So well, I, I don't know. It's that come and that gone. I've served my consequences. I'm kind of over it now. Yeah, but I guess yeah. people don't hold grudges as long as I do. But you know what they say? I'm an elephant. Elephants never forget, and they never forgive. Hmm. I I can never hold a grudge for more than 24 hours. Oh, I've seen you hold one for more than 24 not hours. Much. Um, Christy but, Clark. Yeah, I'm not a fan. <laughs> I'm not her fan. And actually, I was complaining about Suzanne Anton to somebody on the phone today. And the today, uh, you unblocked her from Twitter. She's going to be a future guest on this podcast. Well, I know that, um, and I look forward to hearing it. And I've, there's a few questions that I'd like you to put to her, and in particular, the um, the question on the on the seven day period to apply for a review where you've missed the seven days because you're in jail and the government said that they were going to make the system more fair and the change that she made to the IRP scheme at that point was to reverse the burden of proof and put the burden on the applicant. Well, that lights a fire under anyone's ass to file within the seven days. <laughs> didn't make that the, was sarcasm. Didn't make the system more fair. No. Back to cell phones. I don't yes. think we're going to see a whole rash of people. Uh, I think there will be some more people who want to dispute their phones. We had, as a result of both of us, I guess, being on uh, radio and TV programs um, about it, we've had some calls and, you know, we've a few clients as a result. Uh, but will we see a, a whole raft of people suddenly running in to dispute their cell phone ticket in March, which is Electronic Driving Awareness? month or whatever it is i don't know yes but are we going to see increases beyond money to cell phone penalties is it realistic that we're going to see you know frequent cases involving jail time for here's, cell phone offenses here's the problem it's the evidence get the evidence to prove that that was that that was the uh, the but cause even, of whatever. Um, even say you have the evidence. Are you really going to see the court doling out jail for that? Picking up their cell phone while driving? Yeah. Making a quick phone call to your wife to tell her that she needs to pick up parsnips on her way home from work. Because you're busy picking up the kids from daycare. I, I yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't see jail sentences for it. These police, at, at one point, it was um, our former chief of police, Jamie Graham, I think when he was um, the chief of police in Victoria, he started talking about impounding cars and seizing cell phones. Mm -hmm. And every police officer I talked to said, oh my God, the last thing I want is to be responsible for somebody's cell phone. And who wants to do that to somebody? I mean, they, they've got family, friends, kids, all their whole, your whole life is on your cell phone. You can't. Yeah, see somebody's cell you, phone it's like your it's your personal computer with you can have your whole business on it and what if you're a lawyer and they seize your cell phone they can't seize a lawyer's cell phone there's there there was it was a for most police officers that was an absolute non-starter the fact that jamie graham was floating those things made me think that he had already persuaded somebody in the government to to consider that but that Didn't was jamie graham like leave a handgun under his seat of his car yep so, and that was when they were looking. <laughs> they we're, were not exactly talking you know, about the cream of the crop here. You know, um, he phoned me. I had a long conversation with him one day. The um, he uh, they were missing a shotgun. They were missing a shotgun, and so he was giving a news conference, and they were looking all over for this lost shotgun. And the news conference was, "We have to tell everybody we're sorry. We're missing a shotgun. We take our weapons very seriously. very seriously." And then, as they're 
as he was at the very moment he was giving that news conference, somebody found his handgun under the seat of his car. Picture of competence there. Yeah. So. I wouldn't really take his word that we're going to see phone seizures. It's funny. Uh, lots of people really didn't like him. I, I mean, he was, I thought he was a personable guy. I anyway. grew up on the island. I lived under the reign of Jamie Graham. No, he was here. He was here then. He was the chief of police of Vancouver, and then he moved to the island after you'd moved here. No, because I lived back and forth between here and the island up until I finished law school. Yeah, you're just trying to you're just trying to wedge yourself in so you can say that you lived under the oppressive regime of Jamie Graham. It was a good line. wasn't wasn't, <laughs> wasn't that oppressive? I gotta say though, the um, gee, we're really sort of philosophical and meandering today. We are. Um, the um, over the course of my career, I've noticed such significant differences in certain police departments based on who was in charge and, um, you know, sort of strong personalities. When I first moved here, I had some cases from West Vancouver that were shocking. I could not believe that they were submitted for charge approval. They were so disturbing back in like 2000, 2001, 2003. Um, and it improved, um, actually significantly when Cash Heed was in charge. I was going to say you, you were talking to Cash. I want to bring us back on track and not be meandering and philosophical. So I'm going to cut off this story and bring us back to Cash because he of course appeared on one of the very early episodes of this podcast and he phoned you yesterday. And you were there. Um, yes. and I put it on speaker and he called to say that he, of course he was there at the cabinet table when they were bringing in this cell phone legislation and he was dealing with uh then superintendent of motor vehicles steve martin and um and everybody who was involved in that and he said yeah there was no intention at least from his perspective of um ticketing people who had their phone in their uh, coffee cup holder or you know on a, a ledge inside their dash or something like that because the reality is you're entitled to use your phone even if you don't have a Bluetooth or anything in the in an emergency. Well, so if you were said, entitled to use it, then you're entitled to use it. He also said, and I'm, I think I'm going to ask him to come back um, to talk about this in more detail, but he also said that a lot of the discussion about putting it in the cup holder was that it was sort of understood that a cup holder would be considered securely affixed to the vehicle because there wasn't a real likelihood that the phone was going to go flying out of the cup holder. I think the thing that... that those police officers, the cup holder police officers were thinking to themselves was, okay, maybe they're not using it, but it's there right at their hand's length. And there's no reason to have it in the cup holder uh, under those circumstances when you could have it somewhere where you can't have it like in your pocket or something like that. I'm sorry, but I will say this again. That makes sense if you have men's pockets, but I am wearing a pair of jeans today that have a design sewn onto them to look like there are pockets, but there are no pockets. I know, but I, I, I mean, you could put it in your glove box. There's all sorts of different places. I, I'm not defending them. I'm, you know, I see the legislation. I also see the problem with it. You're entitled to have your phone available to you to be used in an emergency. And what constitutes an emergency? That's, that's a really good question because emergency isn't defined in the legislation. And we can spend a little, a little bit of time on this because I think it's important Emergency could be the obvious, calling the police. My, my problem with that is then you've got to prove it. So if you get the ticket. Take a screenshot. If you get the ticket, 
the police officer tickets you. You can, you know, do you have to show the officer your phone and let him look at your phone? No. You don't want it. Yeah, exactly. So the police officer pulls you over and you say, I was calling 911 or I was trying to phone the police. I was trying to call this in. Um, you know, look, I picked up my phone for the purpose of that. You have to prove it. So you get the ticket and then you have to go to court and you've got to establish it in court. Yes. That's the way the law works. The Galeski decision from the Supreme Court of Canada confirmed that if there is an exception to a rule in law, the burden of proof is on the accused on a balance of probabilities. I get it, but I'm not about to pick up the phone and call 911 if I'm in my vehicle that does not have a Bluetooth because I don't want to face the ticket and have to prove it. I don't want to have to go to court and try and establish it. I... Tweeted a while back, I was driving home in my old Chevy. This was months ago. I had no, you know, way to fix the the uh, phone in there. It was in my pocket. And I was basically cut off by three people who appeared to be potentially people who were impaired. And I got, I thought, you know what? I'm not going to, I'm not going to take the chance of using my phone. Um, and I posted something about that on Twitter and I was attacked. Like I was attacked. Who are you to say that, you know, anyway. Um, it, it's no police officer would ever give you a ticket. I'm not going to sit there and explain to a police officer for 20 minutes, um, you know, and let them see my phone. I'm a lawyer. I'm not going to let anybody see my phone. I think what's more interesting though, is aside from the obvious emergency, the calling 911 to report the impaired or erratic driver, the person following you and pursuing you, the what crime the you just witnessed. the doctor who takes the call? That's an emergency. They've got to well, go. Well, this or is the, the thing. The, the, the person... doctor who takes the emergency call, the parent who takes the call from the child with health issues. Well, the, and... the suicidal the suicidal friend or coworker who yeah. you're trying to talk off the ledge. Because the legislation doesn't say a legal emergency. It doesn't say not a personal emergency. An emergency is left completely undefined. And everybody if, get out of the bathroom. Get out of the bathroom. I'm on the way home. I've got to use the toilet. Potentially an emergency. Yeah. Um, the, you know, every enactment, right? This is the principles of statutory interpretation. Every enactment is meant to be construed in such a way, a broad remedial way that best ensures the attainment of its objects. The remedial construction of emergency would include a subjective opinion of something being an emergency. We're not talking about a necessity defense, right? They didn't write necessity as a defense into the law. They wouldn't have to do that because necessity always exists as a defense. Um, and so I think in writing the exception for an emergency, they left the door open to personal emergencies. And I have legal support for my proposition. In the case of Winthrop and British Columbia Superintendent of Motor Vehicles, Miss Winthrop was using her phone because her son had this history of strokes and he was in the hospital and she didn't know what was going on and she got this call and it was an emergency to her. It was a medical emergency involving her son, but not her calling 911. Yes, but... Um, in the Winthrop case, that was not a defense that she was running at a ticket hearing. No, that but was the an, court... That, yeah, well, hang on. Okay, I'll, um, I'll hear you out. That was an a explanation that she was providing after she had received a notice of intent to prohibit her from driving as a result of that ticket. And it was an explanation for it, um, for, for the use of the cell phone, that reduced the... The, the suggestion that she was a threat to people on the road that are unsatisfactory, 
unsatisfactory in the opinion of the superintendent of motor vehicles driving record um, meant that it was necessary and in the interest of safety to prohibit her from driving. So it was a, I mean, yes, of course, obviously, like if I had a client in those circumstances, that would be the argument I'd be running, but it was in a different venue in a different circumstance. Well, let me read you paragraph 18 of the judgment. In dealing with the circumstance put forward by Miss Winthrop, the adjudicator said she may have had the opportunity to pull over before responding to the emergency notification. Referring to section 214.4 sub B of the Motor Vehicle Act, the emergency exception, which permits a driver to use an electronic device to call the police, fire department, or ambulance at about emergency, the adjudicator suggested that defense only applies to a situation of immediate danger to a person's own personal safety and does not extend to emergencies affecting others. That limitation is not found in the statute. Although I question whether the adjudicator's interpretation of the section was reasonable, I do not need to decide this appeal on that basis. So the court says, I don't think that's right, and the statute doesn't say that. So I think the court is saying there, I think there's enough legal support that you could argue it has persuasive value in the traffic court hearing. Obviously, that would be the argument we would run. Um, And you can think of probably... Uh, you could sit here and come up with hypotheticals for forever Mm -hmm. of what could constitute an emergency on the basis of what's in the Motor Vehicle Act. But again, of course, you have to go and you've got to persuade the tribunal that that's what it was. So the onus is on you to do it and you've got the ticket and then you got to go testify. Yeah, but I mean, it's a, it's, I don't, I can't see a lot of traffic court justices being enthusiastic about convicting somebody who had a legitimate, and I mean, not a everybody get out of the bathroom, I'm on my way home emergency, but a legitimate, you know, your grandmother just had a heart attack and we need you to come home from your out of town business trip. What if the daycare never calls you, ever calls you, and the one day they call you, if they just call you and you pick up the phone, do you think that constitutes an emergency? What if they called you and they said... Oh yeah, you you know your child's feeling a little sick today. That's not an emergency. But, but you don't know until you pick up the phone. Well, it doesn't matter. Once it is an emergency, or if it was an emergency, that's enough to meet the exception. I don't think you have to have knowledge in advance that it's an emergency. Yeah, I see some problems with that. Well, Amber Alerts. What happens when the Amber Alert comes? I guess that know, would be an emergency. But is it really an emergency for you? I mean, is it you know like? They've used an emergency broadcast alert. I would say that constitutes an emergency. Okay, fair enough. I Look, all the people that complained to emergency services the last time there was an Amber Alert in the middle of the night. By the way, you people suck. Like what kind of, <laughs> kind of asshole oh, was that? Oh, I got woken up in the middle of the night. Do you know how many times a night I get woken up with people phoning because they got like a ticket four years ago and they're wondering if it's still on their driving record? I know. Like... <laughs> Poor you, a kid was abducted, and you woke up. Yeah, I know. I know. I just have absolutely no sympathy for those people, and they, they, they should be called out as the prize they are. Yes. If, if you feel that way, if you're upset about having been woken up for an Amber Alert, don't say it. Yeah. You know, just keep it to yourself. Tell it to your dog. If you're, if you're that shallow and useless. <laughs> That's what you know. your dog or your yeah. cat is for. They yeah. can keep your secret that you're a horrible person. I've, I've, I've had some very, you know, poor taste jokes in my head that I've never made. Yeah. I tell a lot of things to my dog. 
Yeah, I'll bet you do. If he ever learned to talk, like, my life would be over. <laughs> <laughs> he, he'd totally betray me too now the second I'm, he got Now I'm curious. Yeah. Um, I wanted to finish the podcast off our last five minutes to talk about something fun because we, we talk often about sad things on this podcast. We often end on a sad note. And today... It's too bad. I say, damn it, Paul, we're not ending on a sad note. We are going to end this podcast with a very positive announcement positive announcement on something we've been working on for a while. It was uh, Kyla's idea. Well, it's not just Kyla's idea because we talked about it many times over, but... Yeah, um, and I kind of ripped had, it off from other people. Yeah, well, other people did it. We just wanted to do it differently. But the um, everybody's always asking us what uh, will generate a result on a roadside breathalyzer, an approved screening device or ASD. We also get a lot of calls from people who say, oh, you know, I was eating fajitas while I was driving and that caused me to fail the breath test. And we're sitting there every time and we're going, no, 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 no. This, you know, and then every once in a while you're sitting there going, well, maybe, maybe. I don't know. The number of times I've run out in the middle of the day to go pick up an item. <laughs> to ta- <laughs> to, to test it. There's a drugstore <laughs> around the corner. Uh, we have to go to... 7-Eleven and pay extortion prices or run up to the IGA to get something. Um, There has been a number of things that we've discovered will give a reading on an approved screening device. And there's a list of things that the, um, that the manufacturer has, and then they list how much you'd have in, to have in your body uh, in order to get a reading and that you'd be dead in all of these circumstances. But we found things that will give false positives, uh, a number of them. And, and, you know, I don't know what necessarily the content is in those devices, in those um, those things, consumer goods. Uh, some of them, no doubt, contain alcohol. Other ones, you you know, you can't find out what the ingredients are because it's not listed on it. Mm-hmm. So we decided um, to create a video series, and we went into the uh, Acumen Lab, um, the AccuLab, we call it. AccuLab Productions. And, uh, yeah, and we've recorded uh, a couple of videos um, dealing with uh, things that will give a fail, and we call it Can, Can You, you fail, fail It? And so we will uh, start those, I guess it looks like our plan is next, next Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, we'll put up our first video, and after that, we will be looking for suggestions from people for things that they would like us to test yep. to see whether or not it will give a fail on a on a... Uh, ASD, an approved screening device. Yeah, and don't just throw out, you know, dumb shit. Like, think about what you've heard from your friends, your family, your, your own experiences. <laughs> um, something, maybe you failed an ASD and you think that there was something you consumed that impacted it. We're going to test everything. Some candy, you know, there's people who tell us that this certain candy, and sometimes you may get that as a result of... Uh, of uh, alcohol being captured in it, eating the candy at the same time, or maybe candy that has alcohol in it. Or there's uh, like alcohol that can be produced by having sugar content. There's things that, uh, there's things that I really don't want to test. Um, We will uh, likely end up eating some disgusting stuff. Yeah. And the time's (laughs) going to come and we're going to, you know, we've got a list of, of uh, like 15 or 20 things we want to try right now. And at the bottom of the list, the very last thing right now is chewing tobacco. Um, Because that will be disgusting. Can we get like a proxy? I know someone who chews. Oh, I just, the thought of it. I don't even want to be in a room with somebody who chews tobacco. But the, um, we, uh, they're short videos. 
and we will uh, show everybody, you know, basically how the approved screening devices work. Uh, and then we will test ourselves uh, to demonstrate that we are, um, that we don't have any alcohol in our body and that it's not uh, alcohol, you know, that we've consumed, although uh, by the end of blowing a few times, you start to get dizzy. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, and then we will test some substance and uh, show you how you can get a false fail on it or, or not. Or, or not. not. Yeah. yeah. We might, we, we might find. We that might some, bust some myths. Yeah. We're, we're inspired by Mythbusters, inspired by some very long and not well-produced YouTube videos. And we're going to try and approach Mythbusters production quality to the best we can in the AccuLabs and, and Accu Studios. And there's a couple things that we're not going to do. We're probably not going to eat a whole loaf of Wonder Bread. Uh, yeah. Only if I can dip it in hollandaise. Yeah. There's, um, and it'll be a while before we try chewing tobacco, but we will try it. So if there's anything you would like us to try on, can you fail it? Um, send us an email or, uh, or give us a call or, or tweet at us and we'll try it. So the, uh, the Acumen Laboratory, we've now, uh, turned off the lights because we've filmed a couple of videos uh, and we're just going to wait until we um, get some more suggestions. And then uh, if we haven't got any suggestions, we've got our whole list of things to, uh, to test and uh, heading into the Acumen uh, lab, throwing on our lab coats and our, our safe, safety goggles. protective equipment. And uh, hoping that we don't have any explosions in the lab, <laughs> like All we right. like we did in Texas, and yes. I still apologize for that. All right, so I look forward to receiving your suggestions, and if you need to reach out to us, you can contact us at six zero four six eight five eight 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 nine or online at vancouvercriminallaw.com And tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. And in the interim, join us in the lab. <laughs> <laughs>